<laughs> oh, do you really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. But it has been a real joy to be with you for the last, uh, this will be the third Sunday, I believe. <clears throat> I was here earlier in the year, and I was thinking that you have, whether you know it or not, you have some wonderful talent here in the church. And every opportunity you have, uh, keeping things decently and in order, give that talent an opportunity to shine. Uh, David did uh, an outstanding job reading scripture this morning, just wonderful. Sometimes when I hear scripture read publicly, I wonder, uh, you know, this is the word of God, and we have to do the very, very best we can when we read it as the word of God. And there's some wonderful musical talent, not only in the pastor's wife, but that young lady playing the violin and Ben and Andrew, that's just uh, wonderful. Now, I say all that, not just to flatter you, but I remember an experience uh, many years ago when, uh, and I think I may have touched on this even this morning, but when it seemed like our lives had come against a, a brick wall, it, it, it seemed like, and Shirley and I would look at each other and say, why, what happened? It doesn't make sense, you know. Uh, our lives, we felt, had been structured in such a way that we were going to be missionaries working in Europe, primarily Italy. Why on earth Italy? Well, because I had two years of experience there in police work, and I felt that there was a real desperate need there for the gospel. And yet, believe it or not, the whole country claims to be Christian. But there's a big difference, biblically speaking, between professing to be a member of an ecclesiastical institution and being a truly born-again believer. So anyway, we were just, in a way, really heartbroken that uh, the door closed. But then we learned a big lesson. When God closes one door, he opens another. And uh, what a door he opened. We were back in Ohio. Oh, Ohio. Something's happening next week between Ohio and Alabama. I'm glad I'm not going to be here. (laughs) Ah, boy. I shouldn't have said that. But (laughs) anyway, the Lord did open an amazing door. And uh, before we knew it, totally unexpected, a Bible class started. The Bible class continued to grow and grow and grow, and we had to have two Bible classes, home Bible classes. Then some person inadvertently, without any prompting from anyone, said, we ought to start a church. It wasn't me, by the way. It was somebody else. And I said, uh, oh, you, you have no idea what you would be up against if you started a church, renting a shop front and people making fun of you, things like that, you know. But anyway, we started a church. And I'm sharing this with you for a very good reason. It was the weirdest thing because I could not get any of those men 
to stand in this pulpit like David did and like Andrew and Ben are doing. Um, they just said, we don't do that. Now, I didn't tell you that. I don't remember how many doctors we had, how many lawyers we had, dentists. I'm talking quite a, a number of them became members of the church. They could not stand in the pulpit and address the congregation. And I pleaded with them and I pleaded with them and finally they started to do it. And something happened in the church when that started to happen because they began to realize that there is a joint fellowship, partnership in the worship service and in the ministry of the church. And oh, how the Lord blessed when that started to happen. Um, I'm saying this also to be very honest with you. If you ever get a chance to let Ben preach or Andrew preach, uh, let them preach. At that meeting just uh, a few months ago, the 50th anniversary of the beginning of that church, I found out that 17 of our young men are now in the ministry. 17 of them in a 50, just over, well, it would be less than that, it would be a 30 year period, which is truly, truly remarkable. And it was a joy to meet some of them. Now, am I saying all this for just popped into the back of my head? I'm hoping that one of them will be down here very soon to visit with us. And that's a sad story because when he was a young man, he just got out of the Air Force serving in Korea. He came up to me one day and he said, I really feel led of the Lord to go into the ministry. And I said, as I always do in that situation, I said, well, isn't there something else you could do and be happy doing it? And he said, I don't think so. Now, usually men say, oh, of course there is then I would say, forget about the ministry. <laughs> because I feel it's a mystical call from God. You've got to feel definitely burdened for the ministry when you enter it. Well, he was in my office a few months after that, and he wanted to marry this young lady. Now, I know that this is a subject misunderstood, but I counseled him against it. For one thing... He had to sign certain anti-nuptial agreements which said that he would raise his children in that particular doctrinal persuasion. And I said, uh, Harry, his name is Harry. My nickname is Harry. Harry, don't do it. But he did it. And a few years later, there was a divorce. And he came to see me a few years ago and he said, you know, I made a big mistake. A big mistake. But God is still calling me to the ministry. And he has a wonderful ministry in Akron, Ohio. I mean, really a wonderful ministry. In grounds that you would not believe. Which the Lord gave to him and gave to the congregation. Two beautiful great big lakes, much uh, greenery and uh, grass and trees and uh, boating and fishing. And a beautiful bay, a place given to him from the Lord for ministry. It used to be a conference ground of some kinds. But he's coming down, and I'm hoping, Brother Sid, that uh, some of you can get to meet him. He, he might be able to come over on a Sunday evening and share 
uh, something. He's booked up the Sunday morning he's here, which is toward the end of January. But I hope you do come out and uh, encourage him also in his ministry. He's a much older guy now. He's about 60 years of age. That's getting old, isn't it? <laughs> but it is a joy to be with you. And uh, I'm just encouraging you to realize, as I'm going to share with you now from the Word of God, that this principle is actually all through the book of Philippians. So take your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. I call this, and I think others do too, an epistle of the heart. An epistle of the heart. Uh, which means, of course, that it is very deeply emotional, spiritual, and something where you have to... Well, let me give you an example. If you have your Bibles open at chapter 1, look at verse 27. And by the way, I think I may have mentioned this uh, sometime past, I have a series of messages on the seven churches in the book of the Revelation. There are seven churches to which Paul wrote. And each one of the epistles has a powerful message, distinctive. Every church is really different in certain cultural uh, considerations. And Philippians is too. But when I say I talk about it's an implication of the heart, look at verse 27. And first of all, conversation in the King James Version doesn't mean chit-chat back and forth. It means your manner of life. Only let your manner of life, now he's writing to the whole church, only let your manner of life be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. In other words, there's a dynamic relationship between the gospel and the way you live your life. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see, there's a relationship there, a dynamical relationship between the believers, between the members of that church. So we can say again, it's a, an epistle of the heart, and certainly it comes out. And you, dear people from down here in southern Alabama, ought to really enjoy this epistle. It's been pointed out to me and to, all, to many others. You'll notice, for example, just jotting very quickly through the first chapter. Look at verse 7. Did you know he, he was writing to southern, southern Alabama? What am I talking about? Even as it is meet for me to think this of y'all. At the end of that verse, y'all. At verse 8, y'all. Then later on in the chapter, y'all. Now I'm being facetious because I'm probably not even pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> but I do like the expression, by the way. Not only as far as the church is concerned, but particularly... And also, this epistle, and I want to get back to chapter 1, is so very, very deeply, intensely practical. Because in this book, if you take the time to look, for example, at the uh, second and third chapters, he talks about letting this mind 
be in you, in the believers, which was also in Christ. There's a mental attitude that Paul wants the believers at that church in Philippi to possess. And it's the same mental attitude that the Lord Jesus Christ possessed. Can you imagine a congregation of believers with the same mind as Christ? I mean, the same general attitudes of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a joke to say, what would Jesus do? I was in the hospital in Holland, Michigan a couple of years ago, and the doctor leaned over on his wrist. was a little band, yellow band. What would Jesus do? And I looked at him and I said, boy, am I glad to have you as my doctor. <laughs> what would Jesus do? What is his attitude? The attitude, and this is the driving force, by the way. It's not just your behavior. But it's the motivation that prompts the behavior, like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now come back to the first few verses. Because what I'm really doing here, I think, is what the Lord has laid on my heart. And I struggled with this yesterday. I was going to give you Jeremiah chapter 1, where Jeremiah gets a very special call to be a prophet. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought this chapter and this whole epistle particularly has something to say to us with a new year in view. Look at the first, well, look at the first few verses. Paul and Timotheus, the servants. Some of you know this, some of you don't. But you know what the word really is saying? Listen carefully now. Paul and Timotheus, the slaves. That's how you would translate the Greek word doulos, the slaves of Jesus Christ. Voluntarily, they had submitted themselves into a servitude to Jesus Christ. What a thought that is. In other words, Christ owned them. If you know anything about slavery back in this day, by the way, back in the Romans days, the owner actually owned that body, that mind, Body and soul. In fact, one of the emperors used to feed his slaves, not blacks, but slaves, whether they be black or whether they be to the lampreys, to feed them. And he could do that and get away with it because he owned them. What a thought this is. It's all there. And the early first century believers would catch it. We don't catch it now. In fact, look how graciously we are. We say, servants of Jesus Christ, rather than slaves. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are in Philippi. The little preposition N appears twice. In Christ, in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. There's some structure there. And I, I remember talking about the church that we helped found many, many years ago. I remember telling some of these professional men, I said, do you realize that they were on the board, a seven-man board? And I said, do you realize that you're all bishops? Boy, did they get a kick out of that. Now, there were people who went to church quite a bit, but they never realized that they were or could be in the church overseers over the congregation. 
and they got the big such a kick out of it, they started calling each other. Hey, Bishop, Bishop uh, Frank and Bishop David and laughed about it. I said, that's not, it's not a joke. You guys are over the flock of God. And that's a responsible position. But it is, when you think about it, you know, you call in today's ecclesiastical world with all the liturgical ideas being bandied back and forth to call a man sitting in the pew a bishop doesn't fit. But it does. It's biblical. Look for those, as Paul said, who are faithful, who know how to teach others also, who have the qualities. But isn't it fascinating? They are identified with Jesus Christ while they are in Philippi. Do you have the same attitude I have? I know the Lord Jesus Christ does on this score. I don't care two cents. I really don't. What name you put outside your church. What denomination you are. In fact, boy, I'm going to upset some of you. Denominations are of the devil. Now, you won't forget that. I'm sure you won't. But it's true because they divide in the whole substance of the thrust of Paul's epistles, and this one in particular, is to unite together. So I'll say it again. Denominationalism is a dividing factor. They all have their peculiar little corner on truth. And for some reason, in the area where I was a pastor, there was one group that never wore buttons on their clothes because that was worldly and that was ungodly to have buttons on your clothes. And consequently, they divided and excommunicated those who had buttons on their clothes. Could you imagine? Is it so stupid? Yet it exists, you see. We are really not in tune with the word of God on these subjects. And we are afraid because if we actually do say, <laughs> just think what Paul just said, to all the saints, every single one of you who belong to God through Christ, every one of you, you are a saint. You are a holy one. Knock on that stupid it is. What you're saying is stupid is what's written black and white in the word of God. What it means is this, because you have come to God through Jesus Christ, God has set you apart. You are holy, not because of what you did, but because of your relationship with Christ. And you are in Christ. You are identified with Jesus Christ. And what the pastor said earlier about it's all about Jesus. And it is really. So I haven't gotten past the first verse. So you could be a bishop, you could be a deacon, but you are a saint of God and you are in Christ. Whether you live in Mobile, Alabama, or whether you live in Foley, or Gulf Shores, or anywhere else, if you're a believer, you are in Christ. What a wonderful thought that is. So your Baptist friend, or your Methodist friend, if they are truly Christians, they are in Christ. Don't ever belittle that fact. I mean, it's it's their business if they want to sign up for. Man, the, the subjects we divide over. Do you know, 
I was a Baptist. You know that there are 20 major different views about water baptism among believers? 20 different views. And even the media, the, the views about the mode, whether you should sprinkle, whether you should pour, whether you should dip under, they divide over it. That's a horrible thought. Now, I don't care what you believe. That's your business before God on that subject. And most of you will say, as my Baptist friends say and my Baptist pastor friend says, I don't believe it saves you. Well, wonderful, I don't believe that either. And I have some Presbyterian friends also who sprinkle babies. And to them, it's very, very important. But should we divide over it? Should we separate over it? What are we going to do in heaven, by the way? Jerry Falwell, I, I, I had the privilege of leading Amanda Christ, who became the soccer coach. He was a professional player, played for Scotland internationally. And he became the soccer coach at Liberty University. And I heard Jerry Falwell tell the joke. Now, Jerry Falwell was a great gospel preacher, preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know he was misrepresented and misunderstood but nevertheless, he said, when you get to heaven, he said, there's one building. When you walk by it, you'll hear a lot of noise there. But be very, very quiet. They think they're the only ones in heaven, and they're Baptists. <laughs> Jerry Falwell is a leading Baptist in this country. And that's a good joke for him to tell, because he's absolutely right. You're going to be surprised at who's going to be there. Really. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Oh, man, that's so wonderful and so sweet. There are some of you here that I've learned to love and learned to know better than others. Because for a couple of years, I don't know what it was, a few years ago, I was here regularly every Sunday just about. And I appreciate you. Very, very much. And I was very deeply moved when I saw the dedication that some of you manifested in the cause of the gospel. Because Pastor Sid cannot do it all. And he needs you. We need the body, the true teaching of the body of Christ in relationship to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So Paul, in every prayer, he's praying for them always. What a subject that is. We touched on that this morning. Do you know that he no less than six times says that we should always be praying? Come on now. How is that possible? I can't spend every waking hour on my knees. That's not prayer. Prayer, in fact, the beauty of it is, there's about six different words for prayer in the Greek language. And the one he uses more than any is the word prosukamai. Do you know what prayer is all about? The word yukamai in the, in the Greek language means a desire, a wish almost, if you understand the word wish. And the preposition at the beginning, pros, means you're facing with a desire, God. And you're sharing with God what this burden is or what this desire is. And that's how simple it is. And all the way through, and if you keep that in the back of your mind, you see, I can be praying for you the moment your name flashes into my brain. I can pray for you. 
and pray something that will be to the glory of God for you. I'll look at these next statements here. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The word fellowship, koinonia. You know what it really means? It means partnership. Fellowship means partnership. So we are joint partners in a venture which is spreading the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ all over the world. Every one of us are part of that. Not one of us can exempt ourselves from that responsibility. God has called us to witness, to be evangelists, to share the gospel in any way we can. Being confident of this very thing that which he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. There's coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to return. And God is working in you until that day. Now you might die before that day and you might be caught up at that day also with the living who know the Lord Jesus Christ. But think about that what Paul is saying here in this passage. And the interesting thing really is this. We're not all gifted the same way. We're all different. But when you put the desires, the mind of Christ, in that group possessed by every, what a chapter that is. Because in that chapter, you see there was something amiss in this church, as there is just about in every church. (laughs) There were two women who couldn't get along, Eutychus and Syntyche in the fourth chapter. What the problem was, I don't know. Uh, who's the Scottish uh, poet, by the way? We were in the church where he wrote that poem. He said, if only, Bobby Burns, if only we could see ourselves the way others see us. <laughs> you read that poem sometimes because what he's saying is, if only we could see ourselves also the way God sees us. That's very, very important. But we are different. There's no doubt about it. And this epistle, as you go, and I don't know what, I have no idea what the problem was. What Bobby Burns was talking about was one had a funny hat and the other one didn't have a hat. In the English churches, Scottish churches, all the women, except one. Every one of you women are unspiritual, except that young lady right there with the red hat. You know the biggest uh, problem that the United States has in international relations? And this happened with the funeral of Princess Diane. Every woman in that service, whether they were American, English, had hats on, except one. The lady representing the United States. Was the, and the papers blew that out of all proportion. That's a cultural thing, wearing a hat. And it's, there's a biblical basis to it, all sorts. So don't, please forgive me, ladies. And I'm not saying this is the only spiritual person here. I'm really not. But it is as far as certain cultures are concerned. And if you're in a culture, I tell you, Shirley wears a hat when she goes to church in England. Because they all wear hats. The women that go to church wear hats. And guess what? Every man has a suit on, a white shirt, and a tie. Look at all of these unspiritual men in this congregation. 
But you know as well as I do, I hope you do anyway, that the holiness that the Bible is talking about is on the heart because God doesn't look on the outward appearance the way man does. God looks on the inward, the heart. And boy, what a difference that makes because that's where all the attitudes are inside the heart. So what he's saying here is this, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. And of course, Paul could say that because he was the one that was the missionary, the apostle to the Gentiles, and he had ministered and established a church. Now, I could go on and on, but let me just try to get to a climax point. This next verse, verse 9, is a very, very important verse in the first chapter. And this I pray. Now, what is he praying about here? This I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. One of the most important prayers you could ever make is that prayer. I think Ben and I were talking about this last Sunday. Um, The Ephesian church was such a wonderful church And yet John, when he writes to that church, the Lord Jesus Christ writes to that church, he says, I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. Love is the most powerful quality in the world. And if there's any group, any group of any kind that ought to exemplify this quality, it's those who belong to Jesus Christ, the members of a local church. And you know as well as I do that sometimes this is sadly missing. And Paul actually is getting down back to that a number of times in this epistle. And when he gets to Seneca and uh, the, the problem between these two women, these two women because, because of it, there was a division in the fellowship. And he wants them to get reconciled. And the most important power to reconcile anyone is love. Did you ever stop and think about, and we just went through Christmas, how much money you spent on your children? What is it that's motivating you? Now you think, that's a foolish illustration. No, it isn't. You have a special bond with that child, that sister, that brother. In some way, physically speaking, you are so intimately related with them that it's a dynamic that makes you do things that you normally perhaps wouldn't do. Well, that's what Paul is praying about in this passage. But there's a little bit more here, and let's see if I can get, bring this out to you. This I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now, in chapter 4, verse 15, you probably are familiar with this. But Paul, as he exhorts the believers at Ephesus, says, I want you to truth, be truthing. That's a corrupt way of saying it, but that's what he's saying in the Greek. 
in love. I want you to stand for the truth and preach the truth in love. And there's no greater power ever than being sharing the gospel in genuine, sincere love. And the point I would try and make is this. But somehow or other, with that love, and that's what he's saying in this verse 9, this I pray, I'm constantly praying for this, that your love may abound yet more and more. You can't exhaust this. In knowledge and in all discernment. You see, because love is a powerful dynamic. But sometimes it's misplaced and misguided. And I don't want to digress and give illustrations of that. But you can do sometimes a lot of harm by not having the discernment to know how to apply the love that's in your heart. It can be counterproductive. And then once again, and with this I'm going to end, I'd like to keep going. With this I'm going to end. That ye may approve, it's all part of the prayer, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. There's two, you're in a dilemma. And there's two choices, I mean, there's two decisions facing you. Now, you need, you need discernment. You need knowledge, you need discernment. And what Paul is saying in, the, in this passage is that you may be able to prove which is the better and approve it. And that needs discernment. So love is not just some quality that you know, when I was teaching in college, just when at uh, Malone College, the rage of the day in all the colleges was a movement called self-love. Actually, it went under uh, a, a different title and a different uh, motivation, but it was love is everything. And they had love sessions and uh, you could do anything if you did it in love. You could kill your spouse if you did it in love. Now, you think that's crazy. Well, you read some of those books back in those days. If the motivation is love, then it can't be wrong. What nonsense is that? Well, that's what Paul is saying here, you see, that your love may abound more and more and more in all knowledge and discernment in order that you might prove and approve that which God honors and blesses. Bow your hearts with me in prayer, would you? Our loving God and our Heavenly Father, we are on the very threshold of another year. And Father, we must be honest with ourselves like the Apostle Paul was. He could say, I, I have been apprehended of Jesus Christ, and I want to apprehend the purpose for which I've been apprehended of Jesus Christ. And I have not yet arrived, but I'm seeking with all the fiber of my being to apprehend the purpose for which I have been saved. And, oh, our God and our Father, if we make New Year's resolutions, may that be one above all the others.
Help us to increase in love more and more toward each other, but help us to do it in knowledge and in all discernment. And we'll be sure to give thee all the praise, for we ask this in the name of the one who made it all possible, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.